1: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Hello and welcome to the 11th edition of The Political Party. This one featuring the former Home Secretary, uh, Health Secretary, Education Secretary, and various other elevated posts of Labour MP, Alan Johnson. Um, Alan is someone I've always wanted to uh, interview I met him a few times when I was a Labour Party member of staff and he was by far the most popular politician amongst uh, a lot of the people I worked with so it's a real joy to have him uh, along to the show I hope you enjoy this one, he was absolutely brilliant This is Alan Johnson Ladies and gentlemen, it's a new year, the political party is back Would you please put your hands together, make an enthusiastic noise for Matt Ball. Happy New Year, everyone! Happy New Year!
0: <laughs> Woo,
2: hello, welcome back uh, to the... Uh, please make an enthusiastic noise. Um, that is not a walk-on that I've uh, I have to say, but uh, it worked. So uh, thank you very much, welcome back. Uh, the first political party of the new year. Uh, if it's your first time here, uh, give me a cheer. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Welcome to the newcomers. I hope you have a great night. Uh, if you've been here before, let's have... Uh, here. Yeah, here, here, yeah, yeah, here. Here, here, here. We get some blood flowing, get it. Uh, uh, welcome, welcome to the, uh, the new show of the first year. Uh, was anyone here for David Davis, uh, the yeah, Christmas yeah, special? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what a crap, I mean he was amazing, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I think I'm going to have to
2: pick some Tories that aren't good. <laughs> because the problem is that I keep bringing Tories down here and they stop, they smash it. Uh, it's sort of, uh, although to be fair, that's the point, but David Davis was marvellous uh, as those of you who are here. I'm sure you'll agree. Uh, he had the right mix of sort of eccentricity and a, a little bit of candid uh, nature about him and told some really good stories. Um, and I, d- I don't think it's too out of order to let you into a little bit of, sort of behind the scenes. Uh, afterwards, I went for a few drinks with David. Um, now, he drank at least two bottles of red wine to himself <laughs> and showed no sign at all of being drunk. So he's properly dangerous. Uh, but there was a bit in the night where he sort of became... Like Alan Partridge, every politician I mentioned, he had at some point saved their career. (laughs) It didn't matter who I mentioned. He said, well, of course, yeah, you know, you're a big fan of Tony Blair. Basically saved Tony's career. You know, that uh, criminal justice bill was going through, and uh, you know he, r- he rang me up in that very Tony way and said, uh, "David, I need your help." So I made a few calls, sorted it out for him, and the uh, <laughs> sort of conversation moved on. Someone said, oh, yeah, that's Gli- uh, "Yeah, that's the thing about Bill Clinton." Funny you mentioned Bill Clinton because uh, you know he had a bit of trouble, and uh, he rang me up and said, "David, uh, I need your help," and I made a few calls and uh, I mean, we sorted it out for him. And that was really, <laughs> so. Sort of, no matter who you he was uh, he was marvellous. Tim Lawton was down here as well. Uh, last month, I'm sure many of you remember, the first Tory that we had on. And he was sat down at the front last month with uh, Justine Greening, uh, the Secretary of State for International Development. And there was a bit in it where, Lawton's been a bit of a rotter when he's been here in the past and I love him for it, but David Davis had forgotten uh, why a particular Conservative had been moved in the reshuffle. Uh, And he said, and I can't remember what he got moved for, Tim, can you remember? And Lawton just went, For being a tosser. (laughs) What an absolute legend. Um, (laughs) The year year started, I think, quite badly in politics, because there's a new tradition now where the party political leaders release their New Year's messages. Mm. Um, I hope I'm the only person in the room who saw them. Because... (laughs) Did anyone else see them? No. Good. They were dreadful. Uh, And it won't surprise you to hear that uh, Ed Miliband was... uh, the least good. Um, <laughs> Ed Miliband's New Year message involved him, uh, talking, uh, uh, which is always a bad start, to be fair, uh, to, the, uh, to the camera saying, Luke, uh, you know, for 2014." you uh, uh I, I just want people to know that, look, it's about the cost of living crisis. <laughs> All right, mate, start the year and a high for God's sake. <laughs> All right. 2014, the Chinese year of the cost of living crisis. Great. <laughs> this has gone awful. But there was a bit in it where, it's, I mean, to be fair, like he, he sort of follows what should be political sense. So it's him talking, soft focus, and then him interacting with members of the public. But there's a bit where he's just. <laughs> wandering around Waterloo Station <laughs> on his own. <laughs> just sort of tra- and he doesn't walk like... He doesn't sort of swagger like a leader. He just sort of drifts. He the he's in not shit his pants. He's trying to find the toilet. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, hi, does he? You there's a bit where he walks over... walks over Embankment Bridge, I think it is. He looks like a man who's come into town on the wrong day. <laughs> but was booked on a specific train home. God, i got... <laughs> I've got three owls to kill. (laughs) (laughs) Sort of walk around. uh. It was just I really, really sort of felt. There was a bit though, a bizarre bit, where these builders in Waterloo Station, in full high vis jacket, were having a photo with him, going, "Hey." No way are they real builders. No way. You're telling me that a load of builders who stand around all day going, yeah, mate, fucking hell, right up a I was. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right, darling. Oh, hey, what are you doing? Smuggling acorns? Oh, hey, go on, girl. You're on with, mate, all night long. Hey, is that Ed Miliband?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Would he agree with you about competition in the financial services. No. <laughs>
0: uh,
2: Didn't quite believe that uh, myself. There was a bit in it as well where, and I hate it when politicians do this, and I've seen plenty of members of the coalition do it, it's not just Ed Miliband, but when they're asked a question like, what do you think of first thing in the morning? Uh, and they go, what I think about actually is how to get a better deal for hard-working families. <laughs> and that middleman does this. He says this in his media message. Look, I, I, I want people to be uh, absolutely clear about this. Uh, uh, you know, every morning when I get up, I'm going to be thinking about, you know, how can I make life fairer for Britain? How can I uh, get a better deal for your family? Mate, if that's what you're thinking about when you wake up in the morning, you are not a man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying I want him to be honest about it. I mean, look, I just want you to tell you that first thing in the morning, I mean, sometimes I'm quite up for it. <laughs> I don't know whether I've had a dream or what, but I wake up and the damn thing's poking up, looking at me. Oh, sometimes I just think about what I'm going to have for lunch. Oh, I do not believe for a second that that's what he thinks about first thing in the morning. How to make life better. I mean, it's quite sweet of him to pretend. Uh, David Cameron's was uh, quite an odd one. Uh, David Cameron, who loves an industrial backdrop just obsessed with standing in front of crates, cranes, and sort of heavy machinery. Hey. It's like he's got you know those novelty photo booths you get in really bad shopping centres. Like in front of the Eiffel Tower or with Bill Clinton like that. He's just got one that's just got loads of different slides of warehouses. Can't resist a good old warehouse. And the thing is as well, the point is, actually the point is very clear, it's meant to on some level make you think, He understands industry. (laughs) But I'm not quite sure that the spinners sort of fully get it. I mean, I I, I don't think anyone in 2014 is going to go, I've got this odd impression, and I don't know where this has come from. But, you know, I reckon David Cameron could handle heavy machinery.
0: I I think I heard
2: it somewhere. Maybe it was on Newsnight. No-one's convinced. No-one thinks. I bet he's had a go on that. (laughs) No-one ever. And he just stands there, doesn't he, Cameron? I actually think out of the three linders he's uh, the sort of more presentable and socially the sort of more acceptable. Uh, he certainly seems more of a leader than, than either of the others, so I have to say. But there's just a bit about the way he speaks. And he's got that sort of bagel face. <laughs> he's got such so, soft skin, I immediately mistrust him. He's almost 50. Is he 50? Is he, fi- is he 50? I actually don't know how old he could be anywhere, could he, between 13 and 17? <laughs> <laughs> he's, uh, he's got one of those smooth faces. And it's just the way that he sort of talks in that... Um, slightly sinister way, and he never looks comfortable looking down the barrel of her lens. To be fair to Miliband, he's quite, you know, crazy with all the stuff, and and Miliband, you know, Blair was obviously great at it. But Cameron just has that sort of thing where he's looking down the barrel of the camera thinking, oh shit, I'm gonna forget what I'm thinking. It's almost like George Osborne is on the other side of the camera going, just fucking say it. <laughs> There's always a bit when he's talking, even though he's going, and of course you want to start 2014, um, with, growing, uh, with a growing economy uh, with falling employment. But I know it's going to be difficult in tough times and all the usual sort of spiel. The way he stands, and when he's always got that sort of industrial background around him, I'm always half convinced he's going to go, and if you had a fall or an accident at work... <laughs> don't ring me, because I'll stop your benefits, mate.
0: <laughs>
2: Nick Clegg, old Cleggie, oh crikey, his was just, you know what he said it is? He said, I want to do something different and then didn't do something different. Which is sort of classic Nick Clegg. I want a new kind of politics, which is why I'm bringing out my message on the same day. But sort of, Clegg and Cameron released theirs on the same day. It's like Blur Oasis all over again. Sort of the battle of Britpop. Uh, Cradling that quite bizarrely, aren't I? Uh, He he said in his, Clegg, he said, "Um, I want to say something a little bit different. Um, I don't want to promise fireworks. I thought it'd be fucking great if you did. Uh, Check this out. He said... uh, I want this year to be more sort of steady as she goes. Oh, great. <laughs> that's, that's a really good, strong message. That is. <laughs> what are you going to do with the next five years in office? Very little. Uh, <laughs> if you can get away with it, actually, yeah, I want to clock off at four. Dreadful. He's, to be fair to him, I really need to open this bottle of water. <laughs> this sounds like a sketch. <laughs> to be fair to him, he's, uh, he does call Clegg on LBC. Uh, does anyone listen to it? Yeah, I think fair play to him. You know what, I've never been a fan of Nick Clegg at all, but I think any politician who goes out there on the front foot and says, you know what, say whatever you like to me, especially if you're Nick Clegg. (laughs) That takes some guts, and I sort of think, you know what, fair play to you, mate, for doing that. He had a call this week, and by the way, I have to say, I work in late-night radio. I do a a late-night phone-in on uh, Talk Sport on Friday nights between 1 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. (laughs)
0: Laugh at my life, mate. Jesus
2: (laughs) (laughs) Christ. It's impossible not to to sound like Alan Partridge when I talk about it. I'm doing quite well. I've got a sports-based chat show uh, on a national broadcaster. Uh, It's 1 a.m. till 6 a.m., but as my friend in Australia calls it, prime time. But I was a bit aggrieved when Clegg got like a daytime slot. I was like, do the hard yards mate, do the overnights. Like, oh, I'd i love to him on overnight radio. The people I get to talk to on talk sport at four o'clock in the morning. I mean, talk sport at four o'clock in the afternoon isn't necessarily a cradle of sanity. At four a.m. I wanted to talk to the sort of people I'd like to talk to, like Russ in Litchfield, who one night, I'd had him on hold for half an hour, went to him and he was halfway through a wank. <laughs> said, OK, let's go to Ross in Litchfield on Banning the Burger. He went, oh, sorry, mate, you caught me with my him in me I said, you rang me, mate. I, didn't. I wasn't outside going, oh, this is going to be a classic. <laughs> Let Clegg deal with some of that, I say. But he had a, he had a, he had a big caller this week. Um, he had White D from Benefit Street. Has uh, so anyone been watching Benefit Street? I reckon more people in here have been watching it. Than <laughs> <later> <laughs> See, I really enjoyed it. Some people have called it poverty porn. Uh, it's, a, it's a phrase I'm not. Uh, have people hear that, I think the Guardian would like, oh, say it's poverty porn. You know, it's, it, it, I have to say it doesn't do it for me. Uh, <laughs> saying it's poverty porn would be like saying the House of Commons is political porn. Uh, yeah, fair point. Actually, uh, yeah. I mean that's the saddest thing. I I don't know what you. Do when you get home drunk and you know, some people like Facebook ex girlfriends and stuff like that. I watch video clips and um, I've woken up in the morning before and I've had three windows open and they've been Tony Blair nineteen ninety-seven <laughs> <laughs> Forest Goals nineteen ninety-five, Blair's resignation two thousand and seven. I've had girlfriends who begged me to watch porn. <laughs> But you got a caller from White D, uh, who's this woman off Benefit Street. Who's, oh, to be fair, until quite recently, I quite like, she rang, so she's on Benefits in Birmingham, she rang LBC,
0: <laughs>
2: which is a London-based... I mean, it, she must have the most powerful digital radio in the country to go with her free plasma screen, right, guys? LAUGHTER uh, <laughs> the Daily Mail started on her Craig. but there's a bit in it where she said oh yeah to be fair I've got a lot of respect now White D if you haven't seen it is actually quite a mother-like figure in this community she's a bit rough but she sort of she looks after people doesn't she she sort of helps people you know with their admin and whatnot. she's like you know, I'll catch up. I, I, I put, like people on the street the admin usually being brushes with the law um, well, I quite like her uh, but she rang me she said yeah I, I, Nick to be honest I voted Lib Dem until last time but you know I vote Labour now uh, and I just thought, you know, that's, you know I was proud, and anyone said they are going to vote Labour, I think, oh, fair do. But then part of you thinks, you know, there's celebrity endorsements. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then
2: there's celebrity endorsements. <laughs> yeah, I vote Labour, because that bitch down there voted Tory last time. And if you see her, tell her I'll slap her fucking face. <laughs> that was a party political broadcast on behalf of the Labour Party. <laughs> Let me just be clear as well, like, this has been a bizarre month in politics. Can people stop trying to perform citizen's arrests on Tony Blair,
0: please?
2: There's a campaign online, I don't know if you've seen it, called Arrest Blair. Uh, started by George Monbiot, uh, so not content with naming and shaming people who weren't paedophiles. Uh, he's now going after people who aren't war criminals. Uh, the other person who's been performing citizen's arrests is, is a member of parliament, Douglas Carswell. Has anyone heard about this? He is uh, he's a member of parliament, he's a Conservative MP, and earlier this month, apprehended uh, a man who he described as a ne'er-do-well,
0: <laughs>
2: who just, I think, robbed the local boots, shot out, he saw this going on, apprehended. Apprehended the scum. And according to the tiny Mail, this is what he said when he got hold of him, he says, you probably don't want to wear this, but I'm your local
0: MP. <laughs> oh, no! Not the
2: local MP! <laughs> do not have to say anything, unless you wish to do so, but anything you do say may end up in a direct mail campaign. <laughs> God! I'd love to see this re-election, Hustings, in 2015. What have you done for this constituency, Mr Carswell? Well, I voted for, uh, you know, the, the jobs down the road, I, I kept um, the university open. I stopped that fight outside Yates's, did I? Yeah, none of you pussies waded in. <laughs> they call me the Terminator around here. Parliamentary term, you know. Oh, yeah. uh, good for him. Uh, there's been a lot, to be fair. There's been a lot of controversy this month. Uh, UKIP uh, councillor David Sylvester uh, got in got in a lot of trouble for suggesting that the recent floods uh, was God's punishment for gay marriage. I don't know. Apparently, there's a God. Uh, <laughs> Full exclusive from David Sylvester. Absolutely amazing. Well, I just thought, you know what? It's such a ridiculous thing to come out with. I don't even know how you can be offended by it. I think David Sylvester's life must be absolute hell. Imagine him going out in the morning when it's raining. Darling, we're going to need an umbrella. They've been at it again. (laughs) Now, I'm not saying it's true. I mean, maybe, right, he said the floods were caused by gay marriage, right? A significant piece of legislation brought by the government. Maybe there's a sliding scale. I'm not saying it's right, but the other day I listened to steps and it started raining.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Maybe he's got a point. Uh, he got himself in a heck of a lot of stuff. And by the way, if he's going to believe in that, we live in Britain, it rains all the time. He must be constantly mortified. Oh God. I mean, to be fair, if that's true, there must be people in Africa going, can you two just shag each other
0: please? <laughs> <laughs> so i tried everything else. <laughs>
2: uh, not the only UKIP story of course that we've had this year Nigel Farage who i had on this show who I quite like came out and said that his 2010 manifesto at the last election was to quote him 486 pages of absolute drivel laughter <laughs> On the BBC he said this, absolute, talked about his own manifesto as being absolute true. Now the problem is with him, is that a part of his appeal is actually that he sounds very authoritative and therefore if you're not in full possession of the facts, he would put you off as an adversary you think, you know what, he sounds so sure of what he's saying, I don't want to go toe to toe with this guy. But now he's basically admitted that the central plank of his acceptability, which is that, trust me, you can believe what I'm saying, whereas actually, oh no, not four years ago, I was talking absolute shit, mate. That <laughs> so I just removed everything. The problem is the way he talks in that way puts people off. Uh, because it sounds as if they look. Let's be honest, for the past five years, the EU has thrown Russia not only over the concerns of the British government but of the British people and it has to stop Right? you're like oh shit yeah he probably does know what he's talking about he's <laughs> been exposed as an absolute pub bullshit really not no 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 look Manchester United drew the other night so they're top of the Premier League that's how it works no Nigel they're eighth mate they've got a point for a draw look if you don't understand football frankly I don't know what you're doing drinking in this pub with all those football facts How <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't you understand what's going on Nigel no look if you cook an egg for a minute everyone knows it turns black no, no, no. the basic cook could tell you that if you don't understand that what are you doing having a full English absolutely not.
0: Uh, well ladies and
2: gentlemen um, it's been a very uh, enjoyable first half in the second half uh, we have a phenomenal guest uh, a man who I've been trying to get here uh, for a year and whose book uh, I'm sure many of you have read it. I can't recommend it hardly enough. It's one of the best books I've ever read. We'll be joined uh, by the one and only Alan Johnson uh, in the second half. Uh, a real treat. A very rare, rare politician, I believe, in this country, and one that I'm sure we'll have great fun with. I'll also open the floor up in the second half uh, for questions about halfway through, so don't be shy. Uh, if you want to think of one in the break, uh, then that would be great. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, you've been magnificent. I've been Matt Ford. I'll see you in 20 minutes. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome back to the second half, uh, and one that I've been looking forward to uh, for uh, a great deal of time. uh, And we're about to welcome a very special guest. I've tried uh, over the last year, uh, this show's been running now, to get a variety of guests uh, across the political spectrum, uh, from various different parties, and people with vastly different experiences. And I think every single guest we've had has brought something completely different. Um, Our guest tonight, Alan Johnson had, and we'll talk about his upbringing at at, uh, quite some length, Uh, frankly, the sort of background that I think no other politician in Britain today uh, has had. An incredible life story, as well as going on to be one of the most popular politicians uh, that we've ever had. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage, Mr. Alan Johnson. (laughs) Alan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for coming down. Um, Your book, uh, which we'll we'll talk about, uh, and and your upbringing are are, are absolutely fascinating and you describe uh, in detail the sort of poverty that you you grew up in. Um, John Hayes, who's a Conservative MP, uh, gave an interview the other year where he said actually coming from a working class background gave him an advantage. Do you think
1: your upbringing was an advantage for you? Well, me and my sister didn't go through that to get a good backstory for the Labour Party, so, uh, (laughs) (laughs) as they say, Uh, no. But you know, there were great things in it. I mean, you know, everyone was living in that kind of poverty in that part of London, which happens to be called Notting Hill these days. Technically speaking, it's Kensal Town. In fact, George Osborne came up. John George Osborne tweeted that he'd liked the book, and then he came up to me and said. Alan, I live in those. <laughs> <laughs> I live around there. <laughs> Maybe a bit different, George, to when I was. There. So, 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 did it give me an advantage? Only an advantage, I suppose. You saw, you know, you went through tough times, yeah. and if you've been through tough times, you don't forget. Them. Uh, it's um, the sort
2: of level of. Uh, uh, I don't want to talk of be uh, offensive about your opinion, but really squalor that you lived in, and I think that's probably the right word, flies in the house and very little clothes, no heating, uh, and, and the poor state of health that particularly your mother was in, uh, is so extreme. Do you think, I mean, are there any other politicians that have been through that, that in the current Parliament?
1: Yeah, well, uh, not quite. you talk about David Davis. David never knew who his father was, was born to a single mother on a council estate in Wandsworth. Um, David Blunkett you know, born blind and lost his father in a dreadful accident when he was five years of age. I think for most, and if you look back, Ernest Bevin was the, uh, what, the 12th illegitimate child of a Somerset farm worker uh, and rose to become foreign secretary. So I think there have been, yes, that particular part of London was, as some of the photographs shown in the book, captured by this great photojournalist, Roger Mayne. Who spent between 1956 and 1960 around Southam Street, where I was, and those other areas around mm-hmm. North Kensington, actually capturing that squalor, but also the vibrancy of a community that was kind of, you know, pulling themselves up together, because that was the only thing they could do. There was nothing else to do but to help each other.
2: You, you, one of the most heartbreaking things about the book is you talk about that you were always hungry, uh, which. I mean, I am, but I eat a lot. <laughs> 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 you weren't able to do that, so I just, oh, God, like there was no Gregs back then or anything. <laughs> um, but it oddly. Was R- Rini's mess <laughs> Shop. Yeah, well, that gets, yeah. is that the one that gets mentioned in the book? Yeah, yeah. But the, um, oddly, despite all this sort of hardship that you outlined, it feels like a, chappy, uh, a, happy, ch- a happy childhood.
1: Well, I didn't want this to be a misery memoir. There's a lot of funny bits in it. Uh, I hope. John Rental said it was the saddest book you'll ever read, but it's not the strap line I want across the paper. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, um, I mean, there were sad things. When we got moved, we had to go south of the Thames. That was a terrible trauma (laughs) trauma (laughs) for (laughs) us. I think people really really appreciate that trauma. But no, I mean, we had uh, an incredible... <laughs> I had an incredible woman as my mother, an incredible woman as my sister. And really, I wanted to tell their story in this book. And, you know, there were others born into similar circumstances who weren't as fortunate to have two characters like that protecting them.
2: You talk about... I'm ruin the book, but your life story is fairly well-known, really. But uh, your mother passes away when you're 13, uh, your sister's 16, and social services try and put you into care, and your sister... And this, this, I mean that's one of the best bits of the book where she argues with the local sort of yeah, yeah. <laughs> social security yeah. bloke and convinces them that she should raise you uh, on her own. I mean at that point as a thirteen-year-old kid, um, how aware are you of um, the sort of situation that you could have quickly gone into, like care, and, and what was sort of perceived oh, I saw all that. Yeah. As well.
1: No, I mean it was really being separated. So when my mum died, they were going to. My mum had spent all her young life on the council waiting list and never got an offer. She always wanted to walk for her own front door. She had this heart condition that meant she was going to die young anyway. And she died when she was 42. Same age as her mother died, same age as her grandmother died. And so I said to Linda, what do we do? She said, we just keep our heads down. And, you know, no one will spot us. We carry on as before. And then a letter came through the door offering my mother, who died two weeks before, a council house in Welling Garden City. So Linda marches round to the council says my mum's dead but we'll take it, thank you very much they said, sorry you're 16 I mean the age, of 21 was the age you could uh, do these things then your brother's 13, he'll have to go into foster care you can go into Dr. Bernardo she was training to be a nursery nurse and carry on your training there and she said, you know, we're not going to have it and then they sent around, it wasn't a, this was a wealth this was a, char- this was what would you call him now, he was, he was a social worker Mr. Pepper with his white Mac and I remember him coming round. So ready. misunderstood.
0: Misunderstood, <laughs> yeah.
1: The fear of being separated and sent with strangers. And he said to Linda, look, you know, I've worked all this out. He made a little presentation. Alan, I found a family for Alan near to his school. And I've got you a place in Dr. Bernardo's. And, you know, he sat back waiting for congratulations. And Linda tore into him, hands on hips, you know, saying we've been on our own for years. Because my mum was in out hospital uh, quite a lot, quite considerably. So... And Mr. Pepper, God bless him, he, God knows how he did it, because I'm told by social workers who were around at the time that it was a very brave decision. Because if something, I mean, he went and argued his corner, came back, offered as a place, Linda went to look at it, rang him up and said, I'm not accepting it. He said, well. <laughs> she said it was, it was worse than anything we'd ever lived in. They thought a couple of kids were given the most mm-hmm. terrible place you could find. They'd the, ripped the doors off to make firewood and all that. Linda saw it. And so she rang up and said, we're not accepting it. And then she said, if you think you go there, if you think you can live there with your family, come and look me in the eye and tell me. Mm. And I'll think about it again. The next thing, we were offered south of the Thames, (laughs) uh, eleven pit house on the Wordsworth Estate in Battersea, which was a lovely little masonette, indoor bath and toilet. So so Linda's uh, courage, I mean, we stayed together. She said to me, look, if needs be, we won't move. They'll have to pull the house down around us. And I thought it would be harder moving that piano in the corner <laughs> than it would be moving us to. you know. I, n- I never thought that her kind of barricade the doors was ever going to work, but fortunately she talked her way out of it, thanks to Mr Pepper.
2: Do you, uh, as you said, Notting Hill's changed a lot uh, since you lived uh, there, and the, the description you have of it is, is a, just a terrible, dilapidated area. Do you ever walk back now? I know a lot of it's been demolished and redeveloped. Do you ever walk back down those old roads and reminisce?
1: Yeah, well, I went back for the book to have a look, uh, just to remind... In fact, I went back with my sister. She was over one Christmas. She lives in Perth. she has been in Australia for 30 years. She ago. really did go south of the Thames. She really did go <laughs> south. <laughs> she just kept going. <laughs> uh, so she came, and we had a look round there. Um, I mean, it was a particular part of... It was called the Golden Ward of North Kensington, that where poverty had gone back for generations. Part of it was the Brickfields. Uh, the census in 1951 said that whereas the density of more than two people to a room, it's about 2.5% in London, in that wall it was 13%. So it always been a very, very poor area. It's changed now. You've got Trolloc Tower now on one corner of Southam Street. Uh, there was the murder of Kelso Cochran on the corner of our street, still unsolved. West Indian guy at the start of the, well actually at the end of the Notting Hill race riots, And there's a little plaque up there on the one bit that's still there, which is the Earl of Warwick pub, which they now call very ponsily the Earl of Portobello pub. (laughs) Uh, But that's still there. That's the only bit that's still there. And thankfully, I think living conditions like that have gone. Poverty's not gone, including all different types of poverty, whereas poverty of aspiration or whatever. There's still a lot of poverty and there's still (coughs) huge inequality. But those kind of living conditions, I hope, have disappeared from this country.
2: There are parallels, oddly, and uh, uh, obviously they're, they're slightly different. But you talk about Mosley at the time and the divisive post-war landscape in Britain, uh, as a result of that poverty and certain amounts of immigration and people sort of being pitted against each other. And we see that to some extent now, obviously not in the same extreme, but in times of economic hardship, people blame immigrants, yep. and there's a yep. there's a big debate going on at, at the moment. Um, do you think that will always be the case? That we'll have that relationship with e- immigration in this country? during an economic downturn? Well,
1: I think it will always be a potent political um, weapon that people will use against. You know, if, you, if you think about those squalid conditions in North Kensington, a, you know, the government urged people to come over from the Commonwealth to come and fill the jobs in the 50s, bus drivers, postmen, hospital porters, and they came, they didn't expect a vote of thanks off of Windrush <laughs> and all that, but they didn't expect that kind of hostility. But London wasn't cosmopolitan then for a start. My mother was from Liverpool. She tried to lose her Liverpool accent very quickly, not because she was ashamed of it, but because if you didn't fit in, you felt you know isolated. And so these poor people came into our living conditions. M- people were on council waiting lists for years. Mosley saying, "Look, these will take these people to take your houses," was a potent force. I mean, jobs actually were quite plentiful in the '50s, so they couldn't say that. So just this difference between a different culture, captured by Roger Mayne's photograph of these four West Indian guys walking in Southam Street, you know, and the little kids looking up as if... And these guys are all got these fabulous hats on and these wonderful cardigans, and they look like a, a completely different culture. And the f- guy at the front, guys at the back are smiling and laughing. The guy at the front is looking out very warily because he knows, you know, there's hostility there. And that's not every person in Notting Hill being a bad person or being racist. It's just the way that was s- stirred up at the time. Mosley lost his deposit. I mean, he, tried, he stood on the spot where Kelso Cochrane was killed, mm. said he was about ballots not, bullet, ballots, not bullets, said he wasn't trying to exploit Kelso Cochrane's murder, but stood on the very spot he was murdered to have his public meetings. But he got sent off with a flea in his ear. At the 1959 general election, he lost his deposit. And, uh, you know, that was the first time it ever happened to him.
2: Because there is, uh, in terms of our relationship with, you know, race and xenophobia <laughs> in this country, there's a, there's a general feeling and you'll hear people say this. Oh, well, you know, my granddad's racist a bit, but, uh, you know, it's a generational thing. And I think, well, my granddad wasn't racist, so it can't, not all people back then were racist. I mean, no. when you think about your upbringing, was racism, say, more rife
1: in a community like that than it would be now? Of course it was. Christ, I mean, you know, those signs were in the shop window. Room to let, no Irish, no dogs, no blacks. You, know, you could do what you like. I mean, in fact, the race, the first, the start of protecting people from racial abuse came after Mosley. And I was not old enough to go in pubs, but you'd walk past a pub. Any black guy tried to walk in a pub in Notting Hill. You know, the most offensive foul language we'd get out. And you know. at that, I was living, breathing part. I had a mate, Derek Tappo. It's all about his was black. My infant school, my primary school. And what he went through, you know, was a lot more difficult than what I had to go through. It, it was very, very prevalent, and it's no use disguising it or saying, "Well, everyone then, you know, was uh, this idea of the fifties being a lovely, innocent generation, you know, everyone was friends." And I thought I mean, it was a brutal era. Not just the way black people treated anyone; who was different. I mean, Christ, they castrated. Uh, The guy from uh, Bletchley Park, uh, yeah, chemically castrated, basically, for being uh, being gay. It's a terrible time. A lot of people, well, I I think certain
2: elements of the media have tried to romanticise working-class life. Uh, that somehow oh, it was better back then, you know, before health and safety and before the government started interfering with wages <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, that's, that, that somehow it was better. But there is, there's a strain of opinion that runs through and I think, you know, um, certain elements of the Conservative Party, certain elements of UKIP, uh, that is, oh, well, it was just easier back then and actually the working class has had a better life.
1: Nostalgia, I mean, yeah, it's Nostalgia. Uh, it was another potent false nostalgia, particularly if you weren't around at that time. <laughs> I mean, a, lot of, a lot of people who'd be there to testify, like my mother, are not around to do that. I mean, a woman's life, you know, you couldn't go and sign a... So my mother wanted, I don't say it in the book, but she wanted to get, hire a radio from radio rentals. You had to have your husband with you if you were a married woman to sign any higher purchase agreement. That went on into the 60s, by the way, went well into the 60s. Um, yeah, I know. It, it was all bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> Good old radio. <laughs> um, we, I mean, there's, a, there's been a general campaign, hasn't there? Certainly from the trade unions recently about we need more working class MPs. And within the Labour Party, this is a debate. And some people on the sort of Blair right wing of the Labour Party think that actually this is just a cover to try and get more union MPs. But in reality, there is a, tr- a problem, isn't there? Attracting working class people. Yes into Absolutely.
1: politics. Absolutely and, uh, and you know the, I think uh, there's an awful lot that needs to be done to counter that but the so called Blairites you were discussing was probably right you know the kind of dear old Len McCluskey view of this isn't whether you're working class, it's whether you're singing from Len's hymn sheet, I, would, I wouldn't pass that, Ernie Bevin would struggle to pass the uh, <laughs> that kind of test, That you have to have a particular set of views and you can't you know, take a different view on the future of the trade Union movement or the future of the link or whatever. Once you take a different view, it's heresy and, you know, you can be as working class as you like, but you don't pass those tests. Now, leave that aside. Do we need working cl- more working people in Parliament? Of course we do. And, you know, part of that is the intern scheme. I've got John with me, John McKenna, who comes from this intern scheme, where they come from working class backgrounds. They you know, they get some training, they get some money, they get mm-hmm. lodgings down here, which the speaker to give him credit has led. But that internship problem is the same in journalism, it's the same in media. You know, you get into these professions through who you know and that gets you on a treadmill. And your networks <coughs> from university. If mm-hmm. you didn't go to university, which is the unusual thing about me, I guess, David Davis, David Blunkett, Others, their lives changed when they went to university. But if you did go to university and you don't have those links and those networks, it's, a, it's tougher.
2: It is. I mean, it, what, is it fair to say that the working classes were more politically aware during your childhood and uh, arguably more passionate about politics or political issues and identified more with political parties than they do now? And if so, why do you think that's changed?
1: Number one, I haven't got a clue. I'm not that old. I'm <laughs> <a kid. laughs> I was a kid in the fifties. Uh, um, d- I, I, tend to think that was the case, and it was the case because the big public meetings and the, you know, the trade union movement. The trade union movement's role in social mobility and in education, incidentally, is the great unsung story. I mean, you know, th- is th- they changed my life. They laid on correspondence courses, the kind of miners' library, all that. That, you know, self-help uh, was part of what trade unions did. Um, now that trade unions have kind of shrunk to, to 5, 6 million for whatever reason, you haven't got those networks there now. And I think that's the difference between the 50s, 60s and now. It's but a big a, difference.
2: A, a huge difference of opinion as, as well on, on social mobility and whether it's increased over the last 30 years, whether it's decreased. And both sides can produce vast amounts of figures. My personal opinion is that I, I feel that actually it's increased regardless of government over the last sort of 30, 40 years. But a lot of people feel that particularly the death of the grammar
1: school system yeah. is responsible for a lack of social mobility. How do you see it? Well, I don't see it that way. And my book tells, me, tells you about my uh, unfortunate experience at Sloan Grammar School. Um, we won't know whether the changes we put into place over, over the period 97 to 2010 sure start centres across the country... Literacy, numeracy, education maintenance allowance, expanding higher education, and all that—we won't know if that's had an effect for at least another twenty-five years. That's the way you measure these mm-hmm. things. We know that social mobility was good post-war. We know it came to a shuddering halt in the eighties. We know now. Um, I tend—I feel that probably it won't show much improvement, just from you know, just the sense of how things are at the moment. Um, but, you know, social mobili- is greater equality is what we ought to aim for, greater equality in every aspect of our lives. And if you read a book called The Spirit Level, which is I'm a great fan of, you know, it's not... Just like health inequalities have very little to do with health. They're about education, they're about housing, they're about uh, jobs. You know, if this government says it's concerned about social mobility, they say they're concerned about closing the health inequalities gap, but really... You have to do it right across government, not have one little department and one <coughs> policy. Here's our strategy for social mobility because it won't work that way.
2: Obviously, you're a, a huge exception, really, To, the, to the if, there is, you know, if social mobility is slowed or halted. Uh, just an incredible to go from the background that you went through with, you know, as you say, no O-levels from, from grammar school, uh, no university education, to then become the leader of a trade union, to become a member of parliament, to hold one of the great four offices of state, uh, it, I mean, it's, if it was in America, it would, you'd be a living proof of the American dream. Um,
1: <laughs> do you think we have a British dream? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Queen's Park Rangers winning the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my British dream. Uh, I mean, it, you know, these thi- things happen to you, and uh, as, as I said before, the trade union are a crucial part of it. They picked up people who had no education, And offered them all these correspondence courses free of charge. Well, for your union subscription. And they were done out at a place called Tillicoultry in Clackmaninshire. It was amazing. So, you know, you want to look at, you want to study sociology, you want to study English literature, whatever. I I did it for fun, really, just to see if I could do it. But there it was, all open for you. And these lecturers would send you back, I mean, these were days pre, obviously, internet and all that, and you'd send your essay off uh, when I was postman at Slough, and then they'd send it back. And you'd have these schools that you could go to. And some people, Ruskin College, Oxford, right, went back into formal education and got... So I, I really think it's the big... My second book, £16.99, published in October, <laughs> uh, <laughs> kind of tries to tell that story. And it's not just me who benefited from that. There's lots of people who benefited from uh, education and trade union. What's, uh, what's odd about the book, I have
2: to say, is that you, it, this incredible experience that you're going through, and you feel almost like a... If you don't mind me saying, you're a sort of passive observer to a lot of it. And you, you, you even say in the book that you just kept yourself quiet and went upstairs and pulled the covers over your head. Um, your sister is the heroine. And if, uh, if, you know, if you were to read that book and someone say, who do you think ended up being the politician? You'd say, well, the sister. <laughs> <laughs> she's yeah, she's well. the one who sort of understands <laughs> how to fend for herself. She's the one who's independent. She's the one who stands up to social services. At what point did you sort of stop being a little bit passive
1: and get an interest in politics? Well, Lynn Barber in the Sunday Times, when she reviewed it, said, never mind about Alan Johnson being Prime Minister. Linda Johnson should have been...
0: Uh, <laughs>
1: and in many ways, I agree with that. Um, well, I tried to... I mean, I probably wasn't as passive as I... I mean, I wanted to be my mother's biographer, and that means I... So I call her Lily all mm-hmm. through the book, right. or Stephen Lily, because, you know, there's no memorial tour, there's no gravestone, there's nothing. We paid five quid for some little rose bush in Kensal Rise Cemetery, not realising yet to repeat the subscription every five years. Well, they ripped it up, so there's no memento to her, uh, no memorial to her. So that is my memorial to her. So I'm probably, you know, I'm standing back. I'm a bit distant in that. Mm. Was there a moment? I don't think there's a moment in anyone's life. Just doing this second book, I'm trying to find some, you know, epiphany moment when I suddenly, whee, that's my political realisation. <laughs> doesn't happen like that, does it? It seeps in. You, you things, you know, I was married with three kids by... The age of twenty, I didn't have a lot of time to study political philosophy. I was <laughs> earning money to bring them up, but all these things seep into you, and then you know y- you become the person you are. Michael Heseltine might have sat down on the back of a fag packet, figuring out where he's going to be in his life. But when you know, he was there's seven, very but few when he was about <laughs> six. <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> William Hague reading hands) <laughs> under the that wasn't me. <laughs> it's,
2: uh, it's just such an unconventional route, though, isn't it, to the top? I mean, were, were, were there any points when you were... Because when I worked for the Labour Party, I was sometimes uncomfortable with uh, the nature of government. Um, I come from a working class background, not as, as severe as yours. Um, <laughs> but but severe, I severe working <laughs> class, as I said. <laughs> But sometimes, like, ministerial cars and stuff like that, and, like, receptions and canapes, and you think, I've become a right old... What? Like, <laughs> know, this isn't the sort of stuff
1: that... You, do you know what I mean? Did you ever feel uncomfortable sometimes? I was vanquish? in there getting those canopies. <laughs>
0: and, uh,
1: <laughs> I didn't know. I mean, the way you get uncomfortable, and this can happen from any background you come from, is when you're in ministerial office, you kind of get a feeling that the people around you have all been educated a certain way and you haven't been through that system and you quite, don't quite understand their code of you know how they talk to each other because it's the first time you've really been surrounded in your working life certainly my, by you know very clever very good people I mean I love my civil servants but they all came from a certain background a certain route in so sometimes you kind of felt like the odd one out some of your colleagues you sit around a cabinet table and Oh yeah, we were together at you know Lancaster University, or oh, we were together at. A show. Oh, I know him from so. Well, you haven't got any of those. Oh, you know, I knew Bert because he was a postman with me at uh, <laughs> Slough Sorting Office. That <laughs> didn't come up. <laughs> didn't come up very often. Um, you know, uh, let's ring the. Uh, let's ring the head of the Environment Agency. Yes, I right. I went to Oxford. <laughs> Alan, did you go I oh, No, I no, never came across him actually. I might have delivered post to him once. Uh, <laughs> that can make you because you feel like. Fish out of water there, but actually, I had this wonderful group of special advisors who I took everywhere with me. Who were kind of um, you're you're kind of a bit of an insulation from that world. I think you can judge sometimes a a,
2: a minister on the sort of special advisors they have and yours I, d- whenever I worked at the party and had to deal with your special advisors there were, were exceptions yeah, down well to earth and yeah, didn't yeah. sort of swagger around in the way that, uh, in that some of the others did I mean did, when you're appointing special advisors are you looking for personality types as well as intellect
1: I was looking for p- I had, they, had, uh, they had great intellect and they had to be we went to five different departments and you had to pick up five different briefs which was difficult for me but difficult for them as well but you know there's a real interesting point for Francis Mould here is looking at reorganising the civil service that actually it's not the number of special advisors, it's their ability to get on with the civil service. The worst special advisors are the ones who come in and act because they've got the ear of the minister, as if s- there might be some civil servants in here, who th- as if they're <laughs> superior to the civil servants. who are The ones who work with them and don't, you know, are not arrogant and uh, are not uh, lofty in their approach are the ones that work, and all of mine were brilliant at that.
2: In terms of your relationship then with other people around the cabinet table, obviously you served under Tony Blair, who uh, went to Fettes College. Tony, Tony
1: read my book, by the way, and emailed me and said, it's a wonderful book I was pleased with. And then he said, you've missed your vocation. And I thought, hold oh, well, on, you appointed <laughs> me. <for laughs> three cabinet positions. You're, so, you're a lousy politician. But
2: <laughs> Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. <laughs> it, despite his background, and I am aware, right? I oddly feel as though Blair's politics are more rooted in working class sensibilities than they were middle class sensibilities, and that actually he's more of a voice for the working class than many people in the union movement are. Is that me just trying to <coughs> sell them to anyone,
1: or do you think that's, or do you think that's think a genuine? Your that bit you, you did of? earlier on about arresting, you know, yeah. You, you go to places now and you talk about Tony Blair who won us three elections. You go to Labour Party meetings and you, you know it's almost you know, it's almost like you, d- you shouldn't mention uh, Tony Blair anymore. Uh, look, his big th- issue, particularly for kids from my background, was when he suddenly made crime and law and order mm. a working class and a labour issue because the people who were getting who were suffering from you know crime doubling between. Uh, between 79 and 97, to pick a period at random, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, were on council estates, you yeah. know, the, the, the things I had to do, and Mike, I brought up three kids on a council estate, it was tough, and for Tony Sonny to pick that up and turn that around and in our favour was wonderful, and still people are, I sense, reluctant to talk about our record on crime and mm. Uh, and uh, anti-social behaviour and all that, which is a very good record. Oh, I so I think all. in the yeah. sense that, yeah, yeah. It, sense that you, you you say that, I think it's absolutely right. He made the point, you know, we're not the political wing of the trade union movement, we're the political wing of the British people. And if, unless we do that, unless we break away from this kind of idea that we only serve one particular group of people in society, of course we're about resolving poverty, we're about greater equality, we're about... We're, we're about eradicating poverty. They're, they're, that's, that's that's what we're here for. But you don't do that by simply looking as if you're, you know, it's back in 1901 and working people don't have the vote, so there's no enfranchisement yet. That's, Tony turned all that around. and he, he, Of course, Neil Kinnock and John Smith did an awful lot before him. But
2: Cynics would say, well, he did that to you know, appeal to Tory voters. That actually, this wasn't born out of conviction. Yeah. This was yeah. electioneering. <laughs> it was very effective. Uh, you know, t- was Tony Blair truly at heart? You know, a tough on crime sort
1: of guy. I, I think he did it out of conviction. Now, Tony was very uh, fond of powerful people who had lots of money. I can't deny that. You know, I'm not trying to paint a picture here, and you know, I don't think that's the crime of the century. But, but he generally wanted to. You go to Sedgefield and see what he did in Sedgefield mm. in terms of. People's lives, and uh, and in the way he got the membership to a tremendous uh, degree, I think he generally wanted to make the Labour Party a mass party again, but he also wanted it to appeal, you know, across the country. And after we'd lost four general elections, we kind of the message sunk in. He would get frustrated because he'd say, "Look, I go to meetings, and Labour Party members say." Look what you've done to the party. Even Tories are voting for us <laughs> now. Without realising that the people who voted Tory last time didn't vote for us this time. We'd never, we'd never get into power.
2: I mean, you come from dramatically different backgrounds, but politically you have a lot in common. Uh, Was your background and his ever an issue when you
1: were dealing yeah. with each other? No, I t- I've told this story before, and it's very cruel to Tony because he hates me telling it, but it's true. He... <laughs> <laughs> he asked to see me, or what... Three days after Christmas, and God knows what it was about. I thought it was some reshuffle or whatever, uh, whatever I was at the time. I think I was education secretary, and I went mm-hmm. to see him in number 10 at Christmas time. And all Leo's toys were around on the floor and all that. And Tony was there in this dreadful crap he used to wear. Like a collarless shirt and a pair of bloody... Collarless shirt? Gee, yeah. What? Yeah, was his granddad shirt. <laughs> yeah. Don't get me started on, uh, on, on the bottom uh, dress Dressing. <laughs> and he's sitting bare feet, uh, bare, barefooted with his feet up on a table. Nice feet? No, uh, nice feet. They were nice feet. <laughs> <laughs> so far as I could tell. And... Um, and he stu- we were just chewing a cut about kids' Christmas prayer. And my, I had a son who was born exactly the same year as Leo I- uh, in a millennium. So uh, it was... I said, uh, yeah, I, well, I said, Oliver's my youngest son. I said, but I had three kids by the time I was 20. And he said, mm-hmm. so you really are working class. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and I kind of waited for him to smile. You know?
1: And I thought, if the working class is procreated on that basis, we'd really have a population problem. <laughs> <laughs> so I could see there was a
2: bit of a clash there. Yeah. Uh. A lot of people in the Labour Party, uh, and, and out of it, to be fair, um, want to make an issue of particularly David Cameron and, and George Osborne's background. And that's something that I've always struggled with, and I think we really let ourselves down when we go down the class route because they can no more help their background than you or I can. Um, there is something at the moment, isn't there, particularly during the, the the economic hardship we're having, the sort of policies maybe, some of the policies that the coalition putting forward, where it's really tempting to make that link and to say, these are rich, arrogant, posh boys, they don't understand already in their lives, and some Tory MPs themselves have said it. Have you always tried to caution against that
1: in private? Always, 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 yeah. It's dead-end politics, in my view. It's, you know... You start going down that route. What do you do about Tony Blair? What do you do about Clem Attlee? What do you do about Harold Wilson? You know, and it has to be uh, not as you say. uh, Cameron had no more control about where he went to school or his background uh, than I did, and I I just feel uncomfortable with it. I mean, it is very tempting. You're right. Some of the things that you know you see, uh, particularly uh, George Osborne, uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, but. But, you know, part of having a broad appeal is not looking as if we're tearing ourselves to bits internally about some kind of envy of someone's background. I want greater equality. I want to eradicate poverty. If there's people from a posh background with plenty of money who were born with a silver spoon in their mouth who want the same things as me, I'm great. I think, welcome, you know, I'll work with you. (laughs) Um...
2: In terms of the new 50p tax rate then, this is... (laughs) (laughs) And as a former Shadow Chancellor yourself, um, what do you make of the announcement this week that if Labour win the election, they'll reinstate the 50p top rate of tax?
1: I think it's absolutely right. Uh, As John Rental said, a second quote I've given to John Rental, I'm a bullseye on this completely. Because this might not have been right ten years ago, and it might not be right in ten years' time, but it's right now for the circumstances we're in, and for you know, whether you call it the age of austerity or whatever, we do have to get the fiscal deficit down, particularly the structural deficit. And, you know, to pick this time to actually reduce the rate to 45p was, I think, a big political mistake by George Osborne. I think there is a difference between (coughs) the two Eds on this, because Ed Miliband has said it's there forever as if it's, you know, set in concrete, whereas Ed Balls has said it's there for now. And I think Ed Balls is right for now.
2: Um, My main problem with it and I agree with you that Osborne should have had more, maco- more recovery and actually I think tactically probably just done it the year before an election do a tax cut the year before an election it would have helped the Tories I think I think he cut it too early because people didn't feel that actually things had changed so it looked as if though it was a tax cut for the rich but equally they've increased the personal allowance at the bottom end so actually they've taken poorer people out of tax as well Labour are now going back to an old position that at the time was meant to be temporary under Alistair Darling. So it just feels like both sides are locked in sort of quite a negative... Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, actually, in an odd way, I think politics should be a creative industry where you're constantly thinking of new ideas. And if you know the income tax top rate isn't the best way, and uh, nearly all the stats show that actually it's not an effective way of taxing rich people because they're effective at playing the income tax system, find a new way to get that money, I'd be, I'd be open to that.
1: It feels as though both party leaders are sort of stuck in quite... Narrow territory. Well, it's going down well with the public, is I would say to you, Matt, at the moment. Um but I think if you're gonna say, you know, for the people at the very bottom, I mean that one percent increase in welfare, even Thatcher didn't do that for welfare recipients. Uh, you know, it's one percent of seventy-seven quid, not one percent of four hundred and seventy quid average wage, uh for the bedroom tax, which is pernicious mm. and cruel, is doing awful things to people in my constituency. Uh, the s- taking away child tax credit from a very important sway of people who are not rich at all. to do all that and then say oh, we're going to bring down uh, you know the tax rate for people earning more than 150,000 a year was a big mistake by Osborne. If you're going to say we're all in it together. now if it was a big mistake, then you know you have to rectify it. It's not going to raise an awful lot, but there again, the idea that actually it was counterproductive and was losing us revenue, I think it's been blown out of the water by the IFS. So, you know, if we're going to go through this together, broader shoulders and all that, um, I think it's the right thing to do. Did you enjoy your time as Shadow Chancellor? It was bloody awful. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: it was... I mean, I've always been a big supporter of yours, and I, I, it, it was the sort of thing where you go... Oh, that's interesting. interesting. I never got the impression that you wanted to have that
1: job. Well, I didn't. No, you're right. Uh, (laughs) And, um, you know, I'd been involved in David's campaign and when Ed won, uh, he asked to see me and we had a few words about a few things and it wasn't a very good meeting. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'd put my name down for the shadow cabinet election really because I thought David was going to win. Otherwise, I'd have done what Jack Straw and... Alistair we were doing you know you've done your bit you've done 11 years go and do something else for a while but then Ed which is an extraordinary act of generosity and you know give the man his credit I I wish I could do your impression (laughs) but he he called me in and said you know I'd like you to be shadow chancellor and I was just gobsmacked and I said well yeah you know, I don't really understand much about economics. He said <laughs> he said something like, neither did Disraeli. <laughs> uh, one nation he was thinking yeah, of yeah, even yeah. at the time. Uh, you know, neither did James Callahan. Callahan had to go away to a course in Oxford for six weeks very quietly to do a great course in crash course in economics. So I thought, all right, let's give, it a, <laughs> let's give it a go. I think, I mean, curiously, you know, if I'd have been appointed as Chancellor... Yeah. rather than shadow chancellor, it'd been different. Because yeah. when you're appointed to a ministerial position, you, you've immediately got this team around you and you've got a red box and you've got advisers and you've got, you know... <coughs> and at that time, Ed hardly had anyone in his office at all. Uh, you know, there was no-one there. There was one great guy, Thorsten, who was, who'd come over with Alistair. It's about all we had. And so talk about in at the deep end. Yeah. And, you know, within two weeks, I had to do the reply to the... Autumn statement uh, w- w- with George in all his pomp. I got through that all right. That was okay, but that was the kind of easy stuff—the you know, showmanship at the dispatch box. But actually, understanding all of this stuff in a very short period of time was, was difficult for me without any support whatsoever. So no, bloody. All. <laughs> 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 it, w-
2: when you were—I mean, in terms of the, the Commons, I always thought you were a, a good performer in there. Did you relish? being at the Dispatch Box?
1: I, I, I'm a bit of a show-off, yeah. so You haven't mentioned my musical career yet, but the reason oh, why uh, that, yeah, show. I wanted to be a big rock and roll star is I, I liked the idea. I, I mean, I still remember those great days at Aylesbury College in front of 200 people playing with the area. Uh, <laughs> so it gave me a taste for that. And I suppose you have to have a b- Very few MPs haven't got that little chip that you know they like to do a bit of showing off in debate. And the dispatch box, actually, much better. Poor old backbenchers have nowhere to put their papers or anything. Mm. Dispatch box is like a little tool if you want to you know, get involved in uh, great oration. Not that I ever managed to do that. So I, so I enjoyed that. Yeah, I enjoyed being at the dispatch box. I enjoyed debating. I enjoyed it in the trade union movement as well.
2: Um, so in terms of working for Ed Miliband, are as Shadow Chancellor, it's a key. I mean, it was seen... It was seen as a big promotion for you in terms of the new era as well. Uh, it was seen massively as a snub to Ed Balls. Did you talk to Ed Balls at all during that period?
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs>
1: well, first of all, Ed was made shadow Home Secretary, which i t- stayed on as shadow. We just yeah. to shadow our own positions when the uh, British public decided to relieve us of our duties in 2010. So we s- until the leadership election, we were all shadowing ourselves, which was mad. So Ed took over that brief, so I had to talk to him about that. And I rang him up that night uh, after making my, TV, my brilliant TV debut when they said, what's the first thing you're going to do? And I said, get an A to Z on economics. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well,
1: it was a bit of a joke, but an <laughs> element of truth in it. Um, and so I rang Ed up on the train um, as she got up to Hull. He <laughs> was fine. Yeah, he was fine. And then we met. talked about he didn't seem all that interested in home affairs by the way, because I think his mind was on other things. Uh, but he was fine he was supportive.
2: Do you, I mean, in, in, have you observed him and Ed Miliband together? Because the, certainly at the start of um, Miliband's leadership, it seemed that they were sort of quite close and they'd both worked for Gordon Brown and that sort of narrative was there. Over the last few years it feels as if there's a, a little bit of distance and uh, I sort of think that Ed Balls almost deliberately cultivated an idea that he's slightly to the side of Ed Miliband
1: I don't think so I mean I think I hope they've learnt their lessons from the Blair Brown I mean the party just isn't going to go through that again and they would uh, come down like a collected ton of bricks on anyone who wanted to recreate the Damien McBride kind of stuff the terrible stuff that was going on the TBGBs you experienced a bit of it from your perch in the East Midlands at the time Um, so I think they've made a real effort (laughs) It's office. They've made a real effort to work together, um, and you know, you always get tensions between a leader and their chancellor. Uh, there were a few problems under Gordon, and Tony, you might remember. But going back, Macmillan and Thornycroft, you know, Thatcher and Lawson, yeah, Major and uh, Lamont. Uh, there's, it, there's always a yeah. bit of tension there. Sometimes it's created tension; it can be good. Sometimes it's destructive tension. I hope. Whatever tension is there is created. I, I never understood why you didn't stand in that leadership election in 2010. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I've told this story. I mean, I went on desert island discs and made my advisers tear their hair out because I'd just been appointed health secretary. Gordon, I, don't forget, I didn't get deputy leader. I stood for deputy leader.
2: Yeah, you see, well, lost that. Yeah, but I remember that campaign. And I, I <laughs> thought long and hard about how to sort of talk to you about this because I was working for the party at the time. And I remember being stood in the Bridgewater Hall when the result was read out, and it was obviously the day that Tony was going to hand over to Gordon. They read out the deputy leadership things, and Harriet beat you on the final round, Harriet Harman. And I remember them doing the PowerPoint presentation on the screen, and it took about five seconds for the horror to sink in. <laughs> and people went, shit, he's lost. And you could, when they said, Harriet Harman, you could hear, it was audible in the thing. Everyone said, went, huh? And very famously, your special advisor was caught behind Claire you. Clare Montague, yeah. Claire Montague. Oh, oh fuck, it's
1: Harriet. <laughs> 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 see it, it's amazing. Catcher.
2: On camera. <laughs> you can see it. But there was just such a shock that, oh, my God. Because everyone just thought you were going to win. You were the most popular amongst the party staff. Including the, me, by the way, yeah. <laughs> uh, but oddly, I, and I, maybe this isn't fair, but I felt that you fought
1: a, a little bit of a reluctant campaign. Is that... Probably, yeah, I wasn't, uh, um, well, I was education secretary at the same time, so, you know, you're trying to do that. Um, I I didn't fight a good campaign, and I wasn't very good as a campaigner. Now, having done that, Gordon's in post, no one was going to beat Gordon then, Mm -hmm. by the way, Um, I went on Desert Island Discs and said, well, I didn't think I was particularly up to the job as a leader, which is not a very wise thing to say if you think at some stage in the future you might be. By the time 2010 came, I'd done two years as Health Secretary, I'd been Home Secretary, and the Lib Dems were coming to talk to us. Uh, you know, They'd left the Tories on that Sunday. They came over to talk to us, and it was clear that their their prerequisite was that Gordon had to stand down, and we had to elect a new leader. Now, I would have put my hat in the ring, because that was someone just taking flack for three years. We're going to have a three-year deal with the Lib Dems yeah. to try and steer through it, and you wouldn't waste the good young talent, whether it's Bulls or Andy Burnham or the Millibands, and so I'd made my mind up on that Monday that I would put my hat in the ring, but that if that didn't come off, and if we were going into opposition, well it needed new blood, you know, and in particular I think yeah. I announced David Milliband's candidature, candidature on the Today programme before he had actually done it, <laughs> for which he thanked <laughs> me uh, <laughs> so I said, uh, no I'm backing back David, because I think it did need a new... I, it needed someone good
0: <laughs> yeah. But I just think
2: you know. I talk to people, and I talk to former colleagues and mates, and people just say, "Why didn't Alan Johnson stand?" And I, when I say to people, "I've got Alan Johnson," on the why didn't he-? people are genuinely baffled as to why someone who is probably arguably the most popular minister to come through the New Labour era with hardly any baggage, and
0: uh, I. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: Oh, does someone needs some water or, yeah. or was really enjoying that? Hi, Ed. Um, <laughs> 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 i will take questions in a second, but I, I just... Was it, was it just... <laughs> was it just that simple that you, you didn't fancy it, you wanted to lead a slightly different well, I life? I
1: didn't fancy being leader of the opposition for five years, and then that would have taken me to 65, and then if we'd have won... Going into my 70s, as uh, no, quite frankly, I didn't fancy that. There were better things to do. Um, and there were better candidates, you know, coming through who would do that. It's a bloody difficult job being the leader of the opposition. It's a bloody different, difficult job being on the opposition front bench. I've got nothing but admiration for them. You know, I'm enjoying my time on the back benches. I'm doing other things. I haven't got that pressure anymore. And, and actually, if you don't really want to be leader... I think this is the important thing. If you don't have that chip inside you that makes you absolutely mad keen to do that poxy, horrible job, (laughs) which, you you know, in any political party, then you're probably not qualified to do it, you know?
2: Well, I was was very honest. Um, uh, I'll open the floor up now to questions. So um, if we could just have the lights up, please clearly indicate, um, for the benefit of the podcast... Uh, I'll have to repeat your question back so that we get it on microphone, uh, so that will be slightly tedious, but we we'll to ask for succinct uh, questions and equally succinct answers, because I know a lot of people would uh, like to ask a question. The lady down here in the red. Hello, um, so you mentioned music. Sorry, um, what's your name? It's Abby. Abby. So uh, would yes, you rather have been a rock true, star uh, yeah. than Prime Minister? And what
1: band would my, you have been? My son said I'd rather be with the Super Furry Animals, which was a big band of mine. The band now, I think, is Everything Everything. And I say that because I know that there's the uh, girlfriend of the lead singer over there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I wouldn't mind... Uh, Bastille would do me as well. But uh, I'd, I'd, I, I alw- I w- th- Absolutely true. Give me a choice between being the leader of a political party or being Home Secretary and being... A rock star I'd choose rock star
2: did it, uh, I mean it, it, in the book you talk about um, the bands that you 're in, uh, the vampires, uh, the area, um, the inbetweens God, who EMI that's were going to come and see, yeah, um, that's right. but th- it seems at every stage where you almost made it, someone nicked your stuff,
1: <laughs> I mean, not your songs you, you, you clobbered, so this is um, obviously why I was praising <laughs> Tony Blair for turning crime and allgam yeah, into a labor subject. Uh, there was a crime wave following me around. <laughs> <the minute>. so, <laughs> so when me and my sister were in this flat in Battersea, the milkman Johnny Carter I used to work for gave me an electric guitar. And as I say in the book, he, you know, I'd like to think he was a distributor. of of electrical musical instruments. But (laughs) (laughs) as he had a cellar full in Notting Hill of musical instruments, I tend to think they probably came uh, through this same route (laughs) and nicked from someone else. But he gave me this Vox Solid electric guitar and he got nicked from our flat. Someone broke in uh, where we lived in Battersea. Then I got the amplifier that my boss at the time in a supermarket, Johnny Ferrugia, had to go guarantor because I was under 21. That got stolen with all the area gear, but I'd taken my Hofner, Very Thin guitar that cost me 35 pounds from Wardle Street home that night. And, and then I signed up with the in-betweens who had their own management and their own gear so I didn't have to buy a new amplifier. And uh, a pub near the Angel in Islington, um, we left the gear overnight. That got broken into. My guitar went. So two guitars and an amplifier. I thought sod this.
2: Uh it's like four weddings and a funeral, but the Alan Johnson version. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I, in terms of like modern music, so Bastille you liked. What about like because a lot of people get into you know the Beatles and the Stones obviously for a particular area, and then they only listen to that. So did your t- did your tastes you know through Britpop in the nineties sort of
1: always developed. Style. But I mean, I don't play any 60s stuff. I love the Who, Small Faces, and all that, but I don't play it anymore. I still play the Beatles. The Beatles have lasted, uh, to, and you know this boy. Yeah. It's a Beatles track, and it was actually a track when my big chance to break through to stardom with Peter Jay and the Jaywalkers, I had to sing it as uh, at the audition. Um, I tell the story in the book. So Beatles stuff has stayed with me, um, but I don't sit and listen to Dire Straits' greatest hits. You know, I lo- I, I think music is constantly evolving, and there's more good stuff around. Now than there ever was.
2: I suppose what I'm trying to get to is do you like Oasis?
1: <laughs> <laughs> bit, of, bit of too much of a Beatles uh, tribute band. Uh. Yeah. Sorry about that. Okay. <laughs> oh, I'll
2: I like them if it's important to Kind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll take uh, some more questions. Uh, yes, the gentleman down here. And if we can follow Abby's tremendous lead of uh, a, a well asked, succinct question, that'd be great.
1: My name's Richard. In the last American election campaign, Obama called Clinton the secretary for explaining stuff, and I think it felt under Gordon you were often his secretary for explaining stuff. What do you think are kind of good principles for communicating with the British public?
2: Good principles for communicating with the British public.
1: Well, t- John Reid had most of that kind of role, the minister for the Today programme, and a few before <laughs> him. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, probably don't go on a course. <laughs> Be the first one, because maybe they. I did a media training course one for two days with the TUC once when I was with the union and I found it very kind of stylistic. <coughs> if you can do it just try and be completely natural and if that means, the trouble is when you're in government you don't say a word out of place because they will be pounced on so you kind of have to try and follow a script but I think there is, and I see many, many people do it, I think there is a way to do that without sounding as if you're on auto control and you're just reading out the party brief if you, if you can do that, I mean, that's the best way to communicate it. And also, accept that you're not doing everything right. I mean, there was someone at the dispatch box tonight, and the debate was on education just as I was leaving, and it's one of the uh, Tory education team ministers. And she said, <laughs> Labour, did <one> thi- <laughs> Labour did one thing right in education policy when they were in government, and that's to introduce academy academies, and we were all complaining, well, surely we did two things right. I mean, you know, three things right. <laughs> you know, in 13 years, we must have done more than one thing right. <laughs> It's that kind of, you know, <coughs> ridiculous exaggeration that gets up people's noses. Because they, they switch off, and they think we're well, just party political, uh, you know.
2: John, John Reid was, I uh, used to love watching it. I mean, I think one of, our, one of Labour's great successes was having really good... Bastards of home secretaries. <laughs> Real tough. Reedy. Every time I watched him on telly, I used to... You know, it's like watching football when they give it to like yeah, Andy yeah, Reid yeah. at Forest, another Reedy. Like, it's the moment where you go, this is going to be quality. Yeah. Go <laughs> on Reedy, really, yeah. get him, mate. I used to love watching yeah. him. But
1: like, but both of them were a little bit overweight, I thought. I, thought <laughs> yeah, I saw Andy Reid right. play the other day. Uh, anyway, leaving that aside. Uh, no, I, you know, we, the, I think the message in the Home Office was that Home Secretaries come in like Roy Jenkins and go out like John (laughs) Reid. That you come in with all these ambitions of being liberal, and Roy Jenkins was a great liberal uh, Home Secretary. But at the moment, when you come in, and I think Theresa May may have found this, when you actually look at what's going on, and you get all your briefing from the security services, and you're doing things that you can never tell anyone about, uh, because it's counter-terrorism you're involved in. You kind of think, oh my God! Uh, I mean, David, who's David Davis, good friend of mine. Yeah. We're in neighbouring constituencies. He's the only Tory I'd go out for a pint with. Not was particularly against Tories, but he's comfortable in that. As you found out, he's comfortable in that situation of having a pint in a pub and all that. But David, you know, great libertarian, and yeah. you know, I admire his views on that. If he was home secretary, I'd love to be there, you know. When he came in and said, look, no to this, no to that, let's get rid of all this, uh, you know, he'd, I think you would struggle. With the, with, the, with the sort of counter-terrorism thing, obviously you're
2: deeply professional, but when it's all like secrets, and it's all like, this stuff's going on abroad, we're going to have to stop it, we can't tell it. Is there a part of you that gets like a bit of an adrenaline rush and thinks, fucking this is cool? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think I know what you're saying. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's exciting. I mean, I found it exciting, and I found it because it wasn't something you could throw money at. It's a very small budget in yeah. home office compared to health uh, education and DWP, which has got the biggest budget of all. Uh, you kind of had to, as my special advisors said, you had to solve problems, much more of an intellectual challenge. I um, mean, it was tough because it was 24-7. You have to sign those. Si- if they're going to do anything, <coughs> it's all the democratic person who signs mm. it off. So you have to be ready to do that uh, day and night, but it gives you a kind of feeling, and you've got yeah. you know you've got your armed people around you. Yeah. I always thought when I was a kid going to some of those pubs and you would get into fights and you would think, oh Jesus, you know, I picked on the wrong person here. <laughs> I always thought when I was Home Secretary, I wish I was in that pub with this little team <laughs> <laughs> sitting in the corner very quietly, and then as soon as this bloke comes, I said, oh, what are you looking at? You know, so looking at you. And then, as he got
0: tougher, <laughs> <laughs> did
2: you get? I mean, you talk about your dad toughening you up in the bucket and making you sort of box with him. Did you get into many fights when you were growing up? Yeah, quite a few. Were you any good?
1: You couldn't help it. Uh, not as good as Tony Cox. Um, Tony Cox. I was going to say the, Tony the, Blair. Then, no, I no, not right. Really, really, really. Not another thing. He's greater. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> No, I wasn't really. I was, good at the, I was good at the pre-fight stage where you try and scare each other off. Yeah. Who are you looking at? I'm looking at you. Well, what's it got to do with you? Well, because I'm looking at you, yeah? Well, so what are you going to do about it? That. And if you look, if you chew gum, yeah. and if you look him straight in the eye, and you look as if, you know, it'll, yeah. there'll be a kind of, yeah, well, all right, well, next time, you know? <laughs> and then you'd walk away, and you wouldn't have to show how useless you are at
2: fighting. Okay, are there any questions on the balcony? Is there? Yes, what's your name?
0: My name's Mark. Uh, the question I have is, uh, given that the uh, David Miliband-Clegg uh, coalition didn't happen in May 2015, uh, 2010, sorry, <laughs> so
1: what does the Ed Miliband-Clegg uh, coalition look like in 2015?
2: What does the Ed Miliband-Clegg coalition look like in 2015, what, what what Miliband, like in 2015 uh,
1: if it It's looking all right. It's looking a bit more prepared than we were in 20. In 2010, um, <coughs> you know, we all want to win the election. We want to win it outright. But I think just as in 2010, uh, people could see that we'll probably get a hung parliament out of this. That is at least a likelihood uh, in 2015. And if you're not thinking about it, you don't have to say that on your party political broadcasts, you know. Vote Labour, but actually we're quite keen to get into coalition. Uh, <laughs> so the trouble then was there was no thought given to it and I have to say I think the Lib Dems were doing a bit of play acting, I don't blame them for this they were doing a bit of play acting to squeeze something more out of the mm. Tories, particularly on the referendum on AV uh, w- so their heart wasn't in it when we were having these discussions um, mm. so uh, yeah I think uh, you know you could see the mood music Vince Cable's comments yesterday which was quite extraordinary the day before GDP growth figures were announced he says rightly I think you know about We're going to have a different kind of economy. It looks like we're going back to debt and the bubble's being blown up again. So I think, you know, you're big, grown-up politicians in a democracy uh, and the public says we're not going to give any of you an overall majority. You're going to have to work out a coalition.
2: And, I mean, it's very hard to predict, but what do you think the most likely outcome in the next
1: election is? I think Labour winning is the most likely outcome. And I don't say that because I think, you know, we've got it cut and dried or... And he said to complacency. I can't see how Cameron is going to get from 37% of the vote to the 41% he needs. When every sitting prime minister since the 50s has—and that was Anthony Eden for a particular reason—has seen their vote decline in office. Happened to Blair. Happened to Thatcher. It will happen to Cameron. So, uh, with UKIP biting at his heels, uh, with the kind of things you see from Ashcroft's polling on, you know, the, 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 the prime marginals. It's very difficult to see how he can get an overall majority.
2: It's unfair, isn't it, that Labour only need 30. I mean, the parliamentary system exaggerates Labour's share of the vote. Um, Cameron needs 41%. Ed Miliband yeah. could become Prime Minister around
1: 35%. It is, and, you know, there's a very solid argument for boundary change. The amazing thing about the Conservative Party is they didn't realise that's a 35 seat plus for them. And I think they did do it in a rather. Bias way, but actually there was a certain logic to it, the way they were going to redraw the boundaries. So we're going to reduce <coughs> the number of MPs down to 600, mm. and they should be reduced. Uh, but that gave them a 30-35 seat, which all they had to do was agree what was in their manifesto for reform in the House of Lords. Instead of that, they refused to accept that, and the Lib Dems' is quid pro quo was, we won't support you on the boundary changes. I mean, I think it was a remarkable remarkably stupid thing for the Tories to do. Now, if we win in 2015, we'll have to get back. To back. I mean, it is unfair. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's some logic in that. Uh,
2: any anyone else right at that sort of top bit of the balcony that perhaps I can't see? Yeah. i really. Could I mean, just have the Venus? lights up there just a little bit? Because I can't I can't see anyone. <laughs> pale chap, double chin. Uh, that does not narrow it down by the looks of things, mate. Um, <laughs> talk about myself, don't worry about it. Um, yes, what's your name, pale James. chap? Um, James. Um, the, the Tory MP said a few days ago that, that some um, politicians are too middle class to understand the problem of immigration. Coming back to what you were speaking about at the beginning, does that resonate with you? Do you think you need to be less middle class to actually understand the effects of immigration at the moment? Do you have to be less middle class to understand the effects no. of immigration? No, I don't think
1: so. I think you can understand the effects. Uh, I think I sp- probably, you know, you, it had a disproportionate effect on some communities. We realised that, which is why we made funds available to kind of help those communities to resolve those problems. And I suppose they're saying, if you you live um, in those communities and you've experienced it, then you know all about it. But if you say that, you know, it's like saying that a writer like John Steinbeck could never write about poverty because he came from a posh background. I don't. You know, I don't I don't, I don't, don't buy that kind of class-focused view of things.
2: Is there anyone in this section here? Yes, the gentleman at the front. What's your name? Uh, Aidan. Aidan. Um, if, hypothetically, you were still shadow chancellor and you've admitted that was a reluctant position, um, what would be your know message for Labour uh, going forward? That that? So if you were shadow chancellor, what would you? I'll message i tell you what it would be. 2015? It
1: would be, don't leave the argument about how the fiscal deficit arose and how the financial crash arose usually you want to fight the next election not the last one but we are so vulnerable to this simple argument that they maxed out on your credit card they you know don't give the keys back to the driver that put it in the ditch we can't let that go i mean it's a complete distortion of uh, of what happened you know the economic crisis wasn't caused by us recruiting more nurses and doctors now i fear that the two eds are more Reluctant to do that because you have to talk about Alistair Darling. Alistair Darling didn't just set out a plan; he was the Chancellor who produced a budget uh, that said how the fiscal deficit would be dealt with. We carried a fiscal responsibility act that said we had to halve it uh, by uh, by the end of a Parliament. Osborne would have failed that; he repealed it, but he failed it. So. Uh, You know, I would, and I I sense they don't want to return to it because it's too much talking about previous Chancellor and previous government, but I don't think we can leave it lie. I think we have to get back into that argument to knock down some of the myths uh, about how the international crisis Is that just one
2: of those things where there will come to a point in the political cycle where people are ready to hear that argument? Because at the moment there's just a point where, no matter what Labour say... No matter how often you say it, people just go, Pfft, you had your chance, mate, you blew it. Isn't that the sort of thing that maybe in a second, if the Tories were to get a second term and things haven't massively improved, people then become a more amenable to actually, let's reassess?
1: Well, I think it goes with, t- uh, 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 normally you wouldn't want to have this argument on the doorstep. It's bloody difficult. The Tories not going to door, they say, remember that lot, they maxed out on their credit card. Wow, simple. Mm-hmm. For us to say, well, actually the problem with Lehman Brothers when it collapsed there was an issue about (laughs) this global structure of banking and that led to a situation where if we didn't actually spend money uh, governments were the only people with pockets deep enough, Blah blah. then the recession would have turned into a depression. Now uh, the 1930s which you remember was only finished by the beginning of the Second World War. Door shut. Thank you very (laughs) much. (laughs) (laughs) How do you get that into snappy Uh, but you know we're, we're leaving that territory not just on the doorstep but in the kind of debates in television studios and all that. We have to return to it now. With it must go some honesty that we didn't do everything right. There was a period where we'd calculated that tax returns would be bigger than they were, and there was a fiscal deficit being built up prior to the collapse. And you have to admit that actually, Ed did while I was still Shadow Chancellor, um, Ed, Ed Miliband did. And it's you know it's a bit of a turgid, difficult, esoteric mm. argument. But if you're asking me. I, I would try and get that into simple terms and I would keep hammering away that this is not why we collapsed. And, you know, this uh, this Osborne view of this, which he's been very successful at pushing, um, you know, we, we've got to fight back against it.
2: OK, I think there's someone else in that section at their hand up. Yes, the, the gentleman at the bar, what's your name? Hi, I'm Rob. Rob. Uh, Uh, so the left often talk about poverty being uh, relative, the right talk about it being absolute. You sound like you're more on the right. Could you clarify?
0: Well, I didn't mean to. <laughs>
1: absolute and relative. Just The eradication. There's two things I'm in uh, Labour Party for. Eradication of poverty and greater equality. Everything else are means towards those ends. I mean eradication, not absolute, not uh, <laughs> relative. The eradication of poverty. What is the point of being involved in politics if you are not looking to pull people out of poverty. We all talk about the poor all the time as if they're convenient for our kind of political narrative. But we must all want to get to a situation where people don't live in that kind of level of poverty. And and it's possible.
2: OK, I'll take two more questions. We could have one-sentence question, please, (coughs) and one-sentence answers. I'll take the lady at the front. Hi, my name's (coughs) Judy. you and what you think that Labour could do about that in the future. So what does poverty of aspiration (laughs) mean to you and what can Labour do about it in the future? (laughs) Uh, (coughs) From a man who didn't stand in the leadership election. (laughs) 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 Ernie Bevan talked about the
1: poverty of aspiration of uh, working people. Um, It's about lifting people's sights, letting a kid from my background, similar backgrounds, believe that they can become surgeons, they can become, they can go to university, they can succeed in all kinds of professions. Because the problem is, you know no one else in your family. I mean, for someone from a certain background, it would be inconceivable that they would their kids wouldn't go to university. From my background, it's inconceivable but that they would go to university. University places have expanded 2% when I was born, 10% when I left school. You know, now it's very healthy that there is the, o- the opportunities to do that. So mainly it's through education, I, I would think. It's also cultural as well, as Trotsky said. In his famous, <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> <good>. <laughs> <laughs> The final question. Oh, uh,
2: uh, yes. Yeah, well, I t- I t- I'll take two more because you look really eager. Um, but I'll come to our good friend, the Northern Tory,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Southern Tory. <laughs> Southern Tory. <laughs> but you're from the north, aren't you? Original. Yeah, that's that's Very good nice. enough, isn't it? This question, Alan. What's your question, mate?
1: You touched briefly uh, on your Home Secretary very briefly on signing orders in respect to terrorism. And I've always wanted to know, how much information did you have as the Minister to sign off? And could you and would you have said no
0: if they said sign here?
2: Uh, how much information did you have to sign That's off uh, as Home Secretary? And would you have resisted <sighs> calls to sign stuff
1: off? Tons of information. I mean, everything <laughs> you had to sign off came with a very big, thick file, with everything in there. Which you read every word of? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> You have to kind of do a bit of quality control on this because otherwise you'd be spending all of your time, like all of your time, just signing these kind of papers. Because it's about the police. It's not not just counterterrorism. So it's about the police. If the police get an idea that someone's got a gun and they're going to shoot someone and they need to kind of be there and bug the flat or whatever uh, to get the culprits, you have to sign it off. So you don't read every bit, but you read what you need to know. There's always a summary. And every so often, you read the whole lot, just so you can get some idea that you're, you know, this is quality stuff. And the summary reflects the contents of the file.
2: And did you ever refuse to
1: sign it? Yes. Idea?
2: Yes. What, what was it?
1: <laughs> he said, that Matt Ford's getting a bit out of his uh, comfort zone. <laughs> we need to... <laughs> Well, your PPS w- well, there are yes, Minister. well, it wouldn't be your PPS. You'd have the head of MI5 in there or whoever wherever <laughs> it was or, or, the, or the head of the Met or whatever coming in. Uh, you'd have to discuss it. I mean, because you know, most of these things are time sensitive, you're taking a big risk doing that. Uh, or you'd get them on the phone. and You'd say, look, here's the bit I'm worried about and they would clarify it. Or they'd say, fair enough. Minister we will go away and do it this way. Great question. The
2: final question to the lady at the back. What's your name? Obviously yes, you.
0: Charlotte.
2: Yes,
1: uh, Charlotte, what's your question, please? Who is your favourite political interviewer and why? Oh. Who's your favourite political interviewer? Well, it's, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, uh,
0: it's Andrew Neil. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh,
1: <laughs> it is, it is, though, honestly. <laughs> and, he's all right. And it, really? <laughs> Matt Ford's my second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Andrew Neil is the only forensic interviewer now. It doesn't matter whether you're a friend of his, whether you know him very well. Or you don't, he is absolutely... And it doesn't matter which part of the political... You know, he destroyed Farage. Yeah, yeah, He was, was just referring so. to it, you know? Because he's always got his facts, he's got a tremendous depth of knowledge, and he is remorseless. And I think, dear old Jeremy Paxman who, <laughs> sorry, <about that. laughs> glass of water for this lady. I mean, when I was higher education minister and I did Newsnight and I was taking through tuition fees Jeremy Paxman said to me so, he said, you went to university, why do you want to pull the ladder up ar- ar- after you? Now, I mean, if anyone knew anything about me it's probably why Blair appointed me in that position because I'd never been to university. Now, Andrew Neil would never have made that mistake and I kind of think that Jeremy was great, I like him but he's kind of got a bit sort of he just mm. nods his head, and, whereas Neil is there all the time and I think he's a, I think it's tremendous talent. Can I get an increase in pay for this week? <laughs> 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 he's very good, but I've
2: still got my natural hair colour. So, um,
0: <laughs>
2: whatever. Uh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, uh, it's been amazing. Um, now, at the uh, end of February, uh, we still went to confirm a guest. I'm talking to two politicians at the moment, one of whom has said Uh, they can pretty much do it but we just need to sort out the finer detail before we confirm at the end of March uh, we have Alastair Campbell Uh, so that should be uh, I'm sure plenty of people who want to ask questions uh, on that Uh, ladies and gentlemen I can't recommend uh, Alan's book uh, This Boy uh, 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 why not? (laughs) Uh, uh, I mean, it's a ti- it made me cry reading it. It was, um, it was really, really emotional. And Sorry uh, about that. A ph- <laughs> a phenomenal book. Um, I look forward to reading the sequel. And uh, thank you all uh, for coming again. Uh, it's really a special night. And I think um, th- this is proof of something, at least, that you know, people want to see politics, maybe in a slightly different way, but they're interested in ideas and the individuals involved. So thank you all uh, very much for coming tonight and making it such a special night. But please... Uh, Your biggest thanks of the evening for the wonderful Alan Johnson. Well, there you go, Alan Johnson. What a likeable bloke. I think everyone I've had on uh, at the political party, someone has said, "Oh, wouldn't it be great if more politicians were like him or her? Or um, I never thought a Tory was like that. Every single guest has had a positive impact, really, on the audience, whether it's in the room on the night or people who listen to the podcast. But Alan Johnson really is one of those people that you look at and think, if only, if only you had, I think he describes it as that little chip, uh, if only he had that extra bit that made him want to be uh, a leader of a party or leader of a country. You get a sense from him, though, and I, th- I think he's absolutely right. I think he's been totally straight with us when he talks about why he doesn't, um, why he didn't really run for the leadership, why his deputy leadership campaign lacked a certain energy. So he doesn't really want it, and um, he's someone who is uh, he's just bizarre, especially if you've read his book. I can't recommend the book more highly, uh, This Boy, and I know i sort of wax lyrical about it. It's going to sound like it's product placement, but it's magnificent, and um, you read that, and you can't believe that the young boy in that book would have... It's incredible that he that he was able to lead any sort of life after that, let alone um, rise to high office. He's a true uh, inspiration. Um, I'm just confirming the guest for February, so that'll be announced as soon as possible on my Twitter feed, at Matt Ford. Uh, tickets are available for the next shows at the St James Theatre website, stjamestheatre.co.uk. The guest for March as I'm sure you know fully where it happens to Campbell, um, and I will be revealing uh, the guests for April and May in due course as well. So once again, thank you for downloading the podcast. Um, I hope you enjoy it. If you do enjoy it, pass it on and tell your friends about it. And, um, well, hope to see you soon. <laughs> I, I always end this like I'm talking. I don't know why I sort of, <laughs> hope to see you soon, hope you well. There's nothing wrong with saying stuff like that. It just makes it feel like an answer phone message. Um, So, yeah, there we go. That's the end of this podcast. Bye.
0: Normally, being a little extra
2: can be a bit much.